What have we been studying lately? First John, John's first letter. He's encouraging his readers about the real deal. Are you ever concerned about the real deal? You ever shop for a used car? You ever shopped online? I'm trying to talk my wife into letting me buy a car on the East Coast. Look at, she doesn't even know that yet. But how do I know if it's the real deal or a good deal or you buy it on eBay and they tell you what it is and you get there and you're like, you got to be kidding me, right? The same thing is true in Christianity. We know that there are all kinds of claims about Christianity and what it is and what it isn't. It's being reformulated and reformatted and all kinds of stuff is being marketed as Christian. All kinds of people are being marketed as Christian. How do you know when it's the real deal? It's not new. It's been happening since the beginning of what we know as Christianity, since the beginning of the church. Much of the New Testament is written to make clear what Christianity is and is not. We need to be looking for the real deal, whether we're looking at a church, whether we're looking at a ministry, whether we're looking at ministers, or whether we're looking at our own life. Because Paul is repeatedly saying that we can fool ourselves. We can deceive ourselves. We can lie to ourselves and others. And so he gives us these tests to evaluate. You ever been around anybody who claims to be a Christian and you, and you kind of think, really? If that's the case, I'm not sure I want to be one. What Paul is saying is here's how you evaluate. John is challenging his readers about those who have claimed to know God, but don't walk as he walks. So if you have your Bibles, grab them. If you can or if you will, will you stand with me as I read chapter 2? 1 John chapter 2. My little children, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness is blinded in his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. 
I write to you fathers because you know him who's from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Father, help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear what you want us to see and know about you this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul said the same thing as John did in Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going through Ephesians. He says, if we claim to be in him, we should walk as he walked. Already we've seen in this letter that John gives a bunch of if-then statements, right? If this is true, then this is true. If you claim this, then this ought to be true. If you claim this and this is not true, then you're a liar, Paul or John gets this pretty specific. It's pretty important. When it's the real deal, our walk matches our talk. I want to camp on this today because it's so important. There are all kinds of misguided ideas about this. We tend to, in America, and I understand we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But it's kind of like, oh, if I pray a magic prayer, I'm in. And even if nothing changes, guess what? Doesn't matter. John is challenging that. And it's pretty important because John says, man, you can fool yourself and you can lie to yourself. Both of those conditions are not very healthy. Have you noticed? What happens if you have cancer and say, I don't really have it? You still have cancer. And what's going to happen? It's going to kill you. We can pretend all kinds of things. Nothing's wrong. Except everything's wrong. And so I want us to understand that John says, do you want to know if your faith is really the real deal? Now listen up. This is what I used to tell my Students, and this is why I tell my grandkids, listen with your eyes. That's why I tell my ski students, with your eyes, listen. If you're here and you're saying, I'm in Christ, but some of these tests aren't true, then you really want to consider whether it's the real deal. Is it possible to have a faith that's not real? If I believe my snow skis are taking me to heaven, is that true? Close, but not true. Yeah, and it depends on the snow. I can believe rightly in the wrong thing and be condemned. I can believe in the right thing wrongly and be condemned. Right? Statement one that he gives us. John says, this isn't a new commandment. John's not telling them anything that they don't know. What does the Old Testament law say about loving our brothers and sisters? Let me read it to you. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall... Reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I'm the Lord. Right? 
So we call it golden rule. So is this a new commandment that John is giving? No. It's as ancient as the Scriptures. What John is saying is not new. What did Jesus say the greatest commandments were? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. This isn't a new commandment. John isn't telling them anything new. So he says in verse 7, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment. You know this stuff, people. Is there anybody here that doubts that God's Word says we're to love each other? It's not new. And yet his second statement is, yet this is a new commandment. How can it be not new and new? There are some things that are new about John's test of our love. The, the way it is described and the way it is lived out. In the original, it's a commandment that we try and drum up. It's now the result of Christ living in us. How did Jesus describe and demonstrate love? Think about the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said. What's his next phrase? But I say. The legalistic demands of the law we sometimes think we can meet. What the rich young ruler say, oh, I've kept all the commandments. And Jesus said, not on my terms you haven't. In every case, Jesus doesn't lessen the expectation of the law. He increases it. Love and hate are redefined in terms that are way above my ability to meet them. They far exceed human definitions and human capabilities. Love like I love. And then he goes on and demonstrates how God defines love. Remember in John 13? The disciples are discussing. They're having the Last Supper, about to have the Last Supper. And what are the disciples discussing? Who's greatest? Who's greatest? And while they're busy arguing about who's most important in the kingdom, what does Jesus do? You guys just keep having that discussion. Gets up, he puts a towel around his face, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. Why did Jesus wash the disciples' feet? Because the disciples wouldn't wash each other's feet. This is a new commandment. You're to love as I loved you. The disciples were waiting for somebody, a servant, somebody of lower class than them, somebody who didn't have their status to wash their feet. So Jesus washes their feet. And then he says this, starting in verse 12, when he, Jesus, had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. That's who I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, what's the next phrase? Blessed. Satisfied. 
satisfied. Happy are you if you do them. And then Jesus gave the ultimate demonstration of his love. He laid down his life, John 15, 12, and 13. This is my commandment, Jesus says, that you love one another. And here's the hard part. As I have loved you. This is a different kind of love, folks. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. What's the new part of John's commandment? It's to love as Jesus loved. By laying down his life for them. This love has nothing to do with feelings. Let me say this again. This love has little, if anything, to do with feelings. Well, I don't feel like loving. What's that got to do with it? It's not about feeling. This is loving. It even isn't some magnanimous action. It's not simply giving something to someone else. One of the ladies in the first service was talking to Shirley Christie in between services, and she said, you're going to hear about love, and I want your Christmas set thing, ornament, because if you love me, you'll give it to me. I said, I, I, maybe you should come back. I think we missed the application. This love isn't simply giving to others, although that may be involved. This love is the giving up of ourselves for others. There are lots of times when we can give, but will we give up ourselves? Will we give up our lives? God sheds his light on what he means by the love of Christ, the love and life of Christ. His love brings light. His life brings light. And when we choose to love, we give up our lives. For whom? Him, which results in us giving up our lives for each other. Now look around this room. There are probably some people that you'd be willing to kind of give up your life for. There are also probably some people that you're thinking, not so much. Who in this room deserves you giving up your life? None of us. We give up our life because he gave his up for us. So if we wait to serve and love people who deserve to be loved, we can excuse all kinds of stuff. What John is saying is the issue of loving one another, and it's not how I feel towards somebody. I may say, I don't like Jacob that well. So, actually, I like Jacob a lot. But whether I like him or not like him isn't the issue. The issue is he's a son of God, and so I love him because God loves him and God loves me. This is no longer simply a commandment. It's a living reality of conversion. What John is saying is, if we say we love him and don't love each other, guess what? First one isn't true. This love is giving up our lives for each other. We love and serve and spend time with each other when it's convenient. Have you noticed that Northwesterners are a little independent? If you live here, you know that, right? You guys are sitting there going, yeah, don't take my guns. 
Independence isn't wrong, but it's not what God called us to. What did he call us to? Interdependence. Interdependence. The word here for love is agape. Our definitions of love fall so short of what the Bible describes. This love that John is talking about is an active, ongoing involvement in the lives of others. Not just when it's convenient, not just when it's comfortable. One of the ways to understand a term or concept is to perhaps understand its opposite. So let's consider what he says about hate. Most of us can excuse independence from other people or lack of involvement in people's lives because we'll say, well, I don't really hate them. I just don't want to serve them. Who was in the 12 disciples group when Jesus washed their feet? (laughs) You got it. Judas. He loved him in spite of what was about to happen. What's the biblical concept of hate? Again, it's not a feeling. It's an action. Think about what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24. It's one of the most famous passages dealing with money. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Notice the correlation between loving and serving. They're intertwined. They're the same. Jesus says we can't serve two masters. Eventually, one loyalty will trump the other. We'll be devoted to one and despise the other. I think the point is comparative. Compared to one, the other will be looked down on or disregarded. If you're married, who's a top priority in your life? You better get this right. Your spouse. And that trumps other loyalties. My grandkids sometimes think that they are the head of the household. Hey, listen with your eyes. Sometimes they think they're my top priority. Well, they may be grandmas, they're not. No. (laughs) I will tell you this they get in my wife's grill, I'm getting in their grill. Why? Because she's my bride. Consider what Jesus said in Luke 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Is Jesus saying we're to hate our fathers and mothers, our wives and children? No, he's told us to honor them. What's he saying? He's saying there comes a time when loyalty will trump loyalty, and you have to choose. There's a dear lady who was here this morning, just praying with us before the morning service, and she was talking about her granddaughter who said, and she said, she's going to the mission field for five months, and I can't remember exactly where she said she's going. She's going to help out with orphans, and she said, it's very obvious that something new has happened in her life, and she loves Jesus more than any of the rest of us all of a sudden, and there will come a day when she is going to leave 
and serve her Savior and Master. And at our age, we will probably never see her again this side of heaven. And Grandma was heartbroken and rejoicing at the same time. Why? She understands there's a priority. And this young lady is going to choose. What John is saying is that there's an ultimate loyalty that takes precedence relationally. So hating is that we will not give our lives to, we will not invest our lives, we will not give up our lives to serve. So I may not hate Jacob, but if I'm not willing to actively love and serve him, what am I doing? I'm dishonoring Effectively, I'm living in hatred because I'm not loving. In Romans chapter 12, Paul says, love must be genuine, sincere, authentic. And in 1 John 3.18, we'll see in a couple of weeks, John says, little children, my little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Living in light if we live in the light, we live loving as Jesus loved. Statement four, living in hate. Now remember the definition we just gave of hate. Living in hate blinds us. Hate is blinding. You ever been ticked at someone? Liar, liar, pants on fire. What happens when we're ticked? I mean, so ticked we can't see straight. Have you ever heard that? That's what John is saying. Love will blind bitterness, anger, hate, unforgiveness. A lack of concern blinds us. It darkens us. It's like shutting the door on the light. I was talking to someone who counsels with people on a regular basis, and he said this. What he finds is that for a person who is bitter or angry, it's like the light of the gospel is shut off. The learning ends. The growth ends. It shuts it off. They're blinded to the truth. Now, before we go on to these last verses, let me give us some so what's this morning. Because in just a few minutes, some of you will be dozing off. Here's the first so what. Although response to God is a personal matter, it's not merely a private or internal matter. Let me say this again. Although response to God is a personal matter, it's not merely a private or an internal matter. Who here can get somebody else saved? Wouldn't you like to do that for your children? We all love free will when it comes to us, just not so much when it comes to our kids. None of us can make a decision to follow Christ for anybody, can we? We'd like to, but we can't. We can't. At the same time, while we know every decision is an individual decision, it involves everybody else in here because when we're born of God, we now have siblings. Look around. You can't divorce these people. They're your brothers and sisters. It's the reality. When these guys were born into our family, they became brothers and sisters. Seb Beckham, he was the first one. And then cousins. They're cousins 
Are there cousins? You two ever wish you could give one of your cousins away? Hey, you're supposed to be listening with your eyes. Or your sister away? Look at her. Listen, this is inevitable. We do not make a decision for Christ in a vacuum. While it's a personal matter, it is not merely a private or an internal matter. And in America, we're so picking independent. We have our own houses, our own cars, our own lives, our own jobs, our own everything. That we think we don't need each other. You know that's not biblical Christianity. You don't find it in the Word of God. As believers, we are part of each other, and that relationship carries priorities. I'm going to read three verses, and I want you to see if you see or hear any similarities. First Thessalonians 3.12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good for one another and to everyone. Galatians 6.10, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. What do you see in there? There is a distinction in our loyalties and our priorities. We're to love everyone. You're supposed to love your neighbor? Are you supposed to love those who don't yet know God? But we love more. There is a priority for those who are in the body and family of God. We owe each other a debt of love. We have this idea out of sight, out of mind. In the churches to whom John was writing, there were those who had evidently believed that they were spiritual enough that their walk with God only depended on themselves, and they didn't need each other. So they no longer associated with the church. I wish I had a buck for every time I've heard in America, well, I really don't need the church. According to John, you do. According to all the New Testament epistles, we do. We have independent Christianity. There's no such thing in the New Testament. Christianity is always, the real deal is always not independent. It's interdependent. Now, I'm not saying that you have to know everybody in this room personally and spend an hour with each person in the room this week. Try that. But what it means is that we're part of a body of Christ. We have to have significant relationships with whom we're loved and being loved and, and, and whom we're accountable to and accountable for. Here we build that around growth groups. i got to tell you, it's really easy to come to church, hide from God, and not let anybody know you or know your stuff. And frankly, we don't like people in our stuff, do we? Somebody say something. I'm lonely up here. We don't like people in our stuff. One of the things that we've always said around here, I used to do all the marital counseling. Well, when we started the church, Gus and I kind of did everything, right? So people will come for marital counseling, and we used to say this. As a pastor, people will come to you for marital counseling, and you'll tell them what they need to hear, and they'll get ticked and leave the church. 
or they love what you tell them and they still leave the church because now you know their stuff. And we don't like people in our business. We want to be secretive. Well, John is saying you can't have it both ways. If we are in Christ, we are in each other, and the test of the reality of our faith is that it results in the reality of living, loving, vital relationships. I had someone not long ago say, man, you guys love us more than our physical family does. John is saying that this is one of the ways we know we have come to know him. If we are oblivious or not caring to how anybody else is doing, where's the light? David Jackman says this. Listen to this. This is a great quote, but it's brutal. Misery loves company, so you're gonna, you, you have to listen to it like I did. Okay, you ready? Listen with your eyes. The more a Christian gets wrapped up in himself or herself, concentrating on the cultivating of his or her own character or the preservation of his or her own virtue, the less clearly he will see the light. And what do we spend time worried about? Our own stuff. We come to church and say, what am I going to get out of it? That pastor better be good. That worship leader better be good. Now it's when it gets brutal. He has become self-centered. And it will not be long before self-love takes over. The greatest enemy of real love is self-love. That is the root of hatred. What Robert L. Candlish said over a century ago remains true. A selfish religionist is sure to become either morbid or stupid. <laughs> I didn't like that one. It is by sympathy and brotherhood that the fire of personal Christianity is fanned. As we love each other. Our experience of his love for us is fanned. Second part of this truth is not necessarily operating independently, but dividing unnecessarily. How many churches are in Post Falls, Idaho? I counted one time. I think it's about a thousand in our greater area here. Spokane, Coeur d'Alene, Post Falls. That'd be a lot of churches. Why do we have so many churches? Proximity to population. I wish that was true. You know why we have so many churches? Because we can't get along. You, you heard about the guy on the, on the island stranded on a on a remote island, and somebody found him. He'd been there for like 10 years, and he, he had a hut that he was living in, and, he, and then he had another big building, and they said, he was a Baptist guy, and they, although it doesn't matter, and um, I just threw that one out, sorry. Um, 
And so they said, hey, what's that other building? That's my church. This is my house. That's my church. Well, what's that other building on the other hill? Well, that's the church I used to go to. Listen, there are probably legitimate reasons for changing ministries and changing churches, but listen to me. Broken relationships is probably not one of them. Because even if we end up in another place, if we end up with broken relationships and move on, the relationships own us. And it says we get trapped and the light goes out. Relational issues must be addressed in the body of Christ as we are to continue to walk in the light. Second, so what? Hate consumes. Consumes. Interesting phrase in verse 10. The ESV says there's no cause of stumbling for those who walk in the light. That phrase, cause of stumbling, is literally a trap or snare. That's a trap. <laughs> when you're tired. It's a snare, a trap. What's the purpose of a snare or a trap? To kill. It's to kill. It's not so somebody can pet you. It's to destroy you. Hate consumes. We talked about this a bit already, but a lack of love takes over our lives. And we can excuse it by saying, well, I really don't hate that person. But if we define hate as a lack of active love, it becomes pretty convicting for all of us. You know anybody who you just don't want to see? Walk into a grocery store and quickly run to the other aisle. Hate blinds and binds us. Third observation is this. Love consumes as well. Light like light overcomes darkness, love overcomes hate. They can't coexist. It's the lady after the first service who said, man, I'm a person who likes to hold grudges. She said, there was this lady I just didn't like much at this church. I'm thinking, Phew. she said lady, so I not me. And she said, then one day we kind of ended up face to face, and she just from inside her heart Said, I can't remember if she said she hugged her or she said she loved her. And the other lady said, I am so sorry. Religion can and often does cause us to focus on ourselves. Have you noticed? But the breakdown of nearly every relationship is a focus on who? Ourselves. Every marriage that struggles is because at least one of the people is selfish, and it's usually the other person than us. <laughs> Have you noticed? I'm not sure exactly what life looks like for each one of us in our various settings. I'll leave you to wrestle with that this week. But that's what John says. Hate consumes and so does love. The last thing is this. This love isn't drummed up. Try and, try and fake this love. Try and get it going. We can change our habits for a little while. We can change the outward, but love like this comes from inside. 
This is an outcome of being loved. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, but the fruit of the Spirit. This is agape love. This is a result of what's being done inside. That's why it's a new command. The light was in Christ, and it's now in his readers. Let's move on briefly to Verses 12 to 14. As you see in your English text, it's set apart in prose. It's a poem or a doxology or a doctrinal statement. Something can be re repeated. Some scholars think it's a creedal statement like the Apostles' Creed, which many are you familiar with. It's a poem or a song. In any case, the repetition, I believe, is so that it won't be forgotten. It's easy to remember. Little children, fathers, young men. Little children, fathers, young men. Who's not included? Now, by the way, that is not generic men. It's people. Young children, fathers and mothers, young men. And most people think there's a debate whether this is actual chronological or familial relationships, but I see it as a summation of who people are in Christ. So let me sum this up. Living in the light is for all ages and all stages. It's no different for a baby in Christ than for some who is considered a father. This may even be the elders. Spiritual growth is a process, but it's not different for those who are more mature than it is for those who are young in the faith. It's all by faith. It's a response of God's love. Listen, what happened is there were people in these churches that said, well, I don't need you. I, I kind of have arrived and God and I are enough. I don't need you. You sorry. You, you know, when you get as spiritual as I am, you won't need me either. So <laughs> that's what was going on. But everybody's faith, everybody's relationship with God is based on the same foundation, Jesus and his finished work on the cross and his abiding presence in every believer. Have you ever heard this? If you just had enough faith in your life, things would be different. That is a lie. It's not about how much faith. It's that we have faith. It's in it's the one in whom we have faith. Jesus said, if you had the faith of a mustard seed, you ever seen a mustard seed? The point is, it's not how much, it's who it's in. And what John is saying is, we need each other because none of us have enough faith to make it on our own. When John said little children, he says, my little children, you know this. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. How many of you deserve to be forgiven? Every husband is thinking, uh, kind of. She married me. She should have known what she was getting. We don't deserve to be forgiven. We're forgiven for his name's sake. And there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Our ultimate identity is in Christ. I was trying to figure out how to illustrate this, and we're out of time, so let me do this. Yesterday was kind of a unique day for me. I had too much to do, and I couldn't get it all to done. So, But here are the things that I needed to be involved in yesterday. One was a memorial service for a dear man, some of you remember, Anton Malarski. 
If you knew Anton, he was a guy who had a story and a history. And yesterday there were people saying stories about how he loved because he was loved. <clears throat> I was also supposed to go to a wedding. <laughs> and, and by the way, it wasn't young people. It was people in their 60s who were getting married. But they, I saw pictures. They looked like young people. It's like they were starting over. They're so in love. They're building a whole new life. And then I spent last night with some kids on the mountain, and, and they were like high energy. And there was one young man I met. Actually, we, I knew him when he was a little stinker. His dad was one of my son's football coaches, and this kid was 14 years old, and he's like 6'4", 240. And I'm supposed to help him up on snow skis. And as I was teaching these kids, some of the little girls, they're like 12 years old, and, and they come and take the lessons. And this, this kid is a football player, and he didn't need my help. So I went over to the bunny hill, and an hour and a half later, he got down the bunny hill the very first time. And he came over, and he said, I'm so sorry. I said, for what? Just took me an hour and a half to get down the bunny hill. I said, I don't care. You didn't need my help. He goes, that's why I'm saying I'm sorry. I really need your help. That's it. All stages, all ages. Here's a man who died in Christ. Here's a couple who's starting a new life. And here are these young kids who are saying, what is life about? And this young man, I said, how in the world did you get here? He said, well, my friend's parents and he invited me to church. And next thing I know, I'm at camp. I said, your parents know you got on the bus? <laughs> yeah. I said, are your parents going to church? No. And I said, so what's the speaker talking about? Life in his name. Three stages of life, all ages, all stages. Who doesn't need the grace of God in our lives today? Who does not need the grace of God in our lives tomorrow? And who around you doesn't need the love and grace of God displayed to them? Because of who Jesus is, not because of who they are. Any questions? Father, this seems so stinking painfully obvious, and yet we struggle with it so much. But the litmus test of our love for you is are we willing to give our lives up, not just for you, but for others who are also your children? Help us to be honest as we evaluate what we say we believe about you by what we realize we believe about living in community. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.